Welcome to SciSection. My name is Anna, and I'm a journalist for the SciSection radio show broadcasted on CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. We are here today with Dr. Azra Raza, who is the Chan Soon Shong Professor of Medicine and Director of the MDS Center at Columbia University, as well as the author of the book, The First Cell. Thank you for taking the time to meet with me, Dr. Raza. Delighted to be here, Anna. It's such an honor. So to begin, could you give us an overview of your career so far? Absolutely, Anna. I grew up in Karachi, Pakistan. And while growing up, I don't know, instinctively, I was always interested in nature. And I, my earliest memories that as a four-year-old, I would be crawling around on the ground following ants uh, and imagining all sorts of their lives. So I started reading about ants at a very early age. And today, I think I know more about ants than anything else. Um, in fact, a friend of mine who's a poet uh, wrote a book named Marmecophile dedicated to me, a book of poetry. So that's how much obsession I, of an obsession I developed with ants. Anyway, I wanted to be a scientist, but in Pakistan, the only entry for science was through medicine. We did not have any PhD programs. And so I went into medicine thinking that, good, I'm just going to finish my medical education and proceed to the West in order to acquire a PhD in natural sciences. Um, except what happened at, uh, in my first year of seeing patients was that I uh, had an encounter, my first encounter with the patient that changed all of my scientific curiosity into a wonder about uh, disease and the human suffering. There's a big difference between curiosity and wonder. Curiosity is something you want to know and then you find it and you're gratified. But wonder basically stands everything on its head. Everything you have known so far suddenly becomes meaningless. That's what happened to me, that all the science that I had been reading about, the evolutionary biology, paleoanthropology, developmental psychology, all this stood on its head when I encountered a patient. And I knew from that moment as a third year medical student, Anna, that I will only uh, pursue knowledge and science that goes into the service of patients. And that's what I did. I came to the US, I got interested in cancer at an intellectual and emotional level, and that's another story, as an encounter with a patient. And cancer problem is such an intellectually challenging problem that I was very much engaged with it. So I came to the US at 24 years of age and started working at Roswell Park Cancer Center in Buffalo, New York, before I even started my residency in medicine. But then continued my work in leukemia studies throughout my residency, fellowship, became an oncologist. And to this day, I see 30 to 40 cancer patients a week and walk many of them to their deaths. But I also have a cutting edge research lab that I've been supervising for 35 plus years with hundreds of original publications in high profile journals. But my most important credential, I think, is that I'm also a cancer widow. So that my late husband, Harvey Preisler, who grew up, was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, at 15 years of age, dedicated his life to studying cancer and treating cancer. In a cruel twist of irony, got the very disease he had dedicated his life to. 
Our daughter was only four years old when he was diagnosed and eight when he died. So Anna, I have had to stand on both sides of the bed as an oncologist and simultaneously as a family member. Therefore, these three credentials of being an oncologist, seeing 30 to 40 patients, being a cutting edge research laboratory supervisor, and uh, really leading some of the research in uh, the latest multi-omic technology, and finally being a cancer widow. This is the trajectory of my career. Thank you. That sounds fascinating. And you have my sympathies, of course, for the losses that you've suffered. So as you've mentioned, you're a physician scientist, so you're on both sides of this war on cancer. So how important would you say it is for you to balance those two sides of your career, and how do you manage to maintain that balance? I don't know if there's a balance because the two are completely united in my mind. They are like two strands of the DNA, double helix. They go hand in hand. What is the separation? If I'm seeing a patient and suddenly the patient has a very high blast count that I'm encountering, that raises scientific questions. So why is there a separation? In fact, this artificial separation of scientists, you go study animals and doctors, we'll go treat cancer. Where do we meet? It's completely mind-boggling to me, Anna, honestly. In fact, one of the sentences in the book you mentioned that I wrote recently, the first cell and the human costs of pursuing cancer to the last. In this book, one of the important sentences I've written about pointing this issue out is that cancer researchers today study a disease they never see in animals who don't get them. So an animal doesn't get spontaneously uh, myelodysplastic syndrome, but there are dozens of models of animal uh, MDS they have created, which they are calling MDS. Oh, it looks like MDS. The counts are, of course, it has nothing to do with the human disease. This is the problem. So when you ask me, how do I balance the two? To me, they are one and the same thing. Sure, it requires double the amount of work, but then if you're afraid of work, don't come into this area, please. Just go and do something that will give you a nine-to-five job. This is not a nine-to-five job, and you just have to balance as best as you can. And I'm a mother, I was a, I'm a wife, I'm a widow now for some years, but I have a very busy social life as well. But that doesn't mean that patients uh, should not be front and center in everything I'm doing. Yes, thank you for pointing that out. I think it's, that's a very unique and important perspective to have. And so thank you for sharing that. So you've had a lot of successes throughout your career so far. What would you say you've done differently compared to your peers throughout the years to help you become who you are today and achieve the kind of success that you've had? I think the thing that helped me <laughs> to begin with, Anna, uh, is that I'm an immigrant. I'm a Muslim. I'm a woman. At 24 years of age, I arrived in this country with the grand design of curing cancer. So I have an outsider's perspective. Plus the culture I come from is an interesting blend of Athens and Jerusalem. Passion and reason. Spirituality and science. There is a seamlessness which blends them. The way we are raised, Anna, is to realize that if you climb a mountain in pursuit of Zen, the only Zen you will find on top of the mountain is the Zen you bring with yourself. 
What does that mean? That means that in a way, the moment of gratification, the ultimate goal, if you achieve it, can never measure up to the vastness of your dreams and desires. Because what provides a force to your life and to your engagement with deep questions in life are your dreams, your visions, your wanting to do something different. All the time knowing full well that they may never be a calm of consummation. Because you see, life is an enigma into incompletion. So while my goal and my dream is to cure cancer, I also am fully practical in understanding I may never achieve that dream, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't keep trying to find my Zen. So I think, and I don't set little goals for myself because we are allowed to dream big dreams and, and have a big vision and do our very best to try and reach it. So I think it's a very cultural thing to begin with. And this is why uh, when I came to this country, one of the big important lessons was never get involved emotionally with your patients. Don't get too close to them. Why? Because emotions cloud judgment and you may not be able to provide them with the best care. To me, that's like just the exact opposite of what you should be doing. Unless you are engaged with a patient emotionally, how are you going to understand what's bothering them what is their 3 a.m agenda that keeps them up at night what should you be really trying to help them with in a holistic way how do you heal them rather than just cure them with an antibiotic for an infection you know that kind of thing so i think my trajectory my background my immigrant status my being outside the box allowed me to depend on instinct rather than tradition and custom of this country. And so when I decided to study acute myeloid leukemia, um, then I would have made a mouse model for it if I had been studying in this country. But coming from Pakistan, I was a young, uh, naive person. It never even occurred to me to make an animal model. So I would say that these, you know, life's experiences, the context in which you are raised, the education you get, and um, also, I was the child of, an, of immigrants who had moved from India to Pakistan at the time of partition of the subcontinent. So my parents had the, you know, immigrants uh, obsession with their children having to somehow do better than they did. And they were colonized by the British. And they realized that you can't fight them, join them and beat them at their own game. And the best thing that the West brought to the East was the age of reason thinking, the modern science, industrial revolution, education. And my parents, for all seven of my siblings, insisted that we get the highest possible education and uh, really gain knowledge for the sake of knowledge, not for the sake of uh, uh, monetizing it. That would be crude and crass in our culture. So you mentioned that you study acute myeloid leukemia and your research focus is acute leukemia and pre-leukemia. Could you tell us a bit about how you chose those two diseases as your area of focus, both in research and in clinical practice? Very simple, Anna. I became infatuated with the intellectual challenge of cancer. And after seeing my first patient, which is etched on my brain, of course, uh, but uh, but the whole idea was that when I uh, 
came to this country also and wanted to do research in the area, it was very clear that studying a solid tumor it poses certain problems. You can only remove the tumor once. You have to disaggregate the cells to study them. Liquid tumors, they are flowing all the time. You can sample as much as you want before, during, after treatment. So much easier to study. They're in single cell suspension. You can study them. So I started studying acute myeloid leukemia and treating patients. But within eight years or so, it became very clear to me, Anna, that in my lifetime, this disease is so malevolent, so vicious that it will not be cured in my lifetime. And unfortunately, I was right that the same two drugs I was using in 1977 to treat acute myeloid leukemia, these two drugs are popularly called seven and three because it's seven days of one, three days of another. The same two drugs I'm giving in 2020, Anna. So I was unfortunately right. But many of my patients gave the story that a few months before, their, uh, sometimes years before they were diagnosed with leukemia, their counts were low, anemia, things like that. And that's called pre-leukemia and myelodysplastic syndrome. So I said, wow, this is great. Now I can just study patients at the earlier form, pre-leukemia, follow them as they develop leukemia and unravel the whole um, you know, transformative journey of the cell. And that's how I started by studying acute myeloid leukemia and then moving to pre-leukemia, following them to acute leukemia. That's lovely. And so your work in pre-leukemia and acute leukemia, as well as your belief that we should work on treating cancer and targeting it at its earliest stages, as opposed to the later ones, as we currently do, are some of the main ideas in your book, The First Cell and the Human Cost of Pursuing Cancer to the Last. So for those of us who aren't familiar, could you give a brief summary of the book and share some of your reasons for writing it? Thank you, Anna. That is a subject most close to my heart. So I, I'll begin by just quoting you one statistic. In 2020, this year, the age-adjusted mortality from cancer is the same as it was in 1930. I can't make up such statistics because they're so bad. Sure, there has been a 1% annual decline in cancer mortality in America in the last 30 years, which is, means that 26% less people are, less, fewer people are dying of cancer. But that decline follows a steep incline in the preceding 30 years. And both the up and down swings parallel rise and fall in smoking. So it isn't that this 1% decrease in mortality is coming from something new we have developed as a strategy. In fact, we are curing 68% of patients diagnosed with cancer today. But curing with what? Slash poison burn. The same treatments we were using in 1950s and 60s. The 32% that we are not curing their outcome is no different than it was in 1930 because they're diagnosed with advanced disease. So basically, the only reason we have been able to cure 68% patients, except few exceptions here and there that account for less than 10% of non-slash-poison-burn treatments, the vast majority, especially the common cancers that are killing 90% of cancer patients, we have made essentially very few advances. Very few. So the question comes up, okay, 
where have the 250 billion dollars in research gone that have produced over 4 million publications in cancer why is nothing improving the website problems this is my issue and the reasons i point out in the book is i call it crush which means you know the cancer is a highly complex disease Yet we are trying to deal with it with a reductionist conceit. Oh, we'll find one gene that causes one cancer and then we are going to cure it with one magic bullet. So the complexity, the reductionist conceit, the ultra hype of small little gains. You know, you'll see these big headlines, new cure found for uh, lung cancer. And in fine print, it will say in mice. But you see, most of the public gets fooled into thinking, wow, they found a lung cancer cure. Now, if I get lung cancer, I can go into such and such hospital and be cured. This is the smoke and mirror approach that has created a sense in the public that great advances have been made. I'm sorry, very few advances have really helped patients. Then the next thing is the simplistic clinical trials we are doing based on animal studies. You create an artificial tumor in a mouse. You treat it with a drug. The mouse gets cured. Now you bring the drug to the patient's bedside. When you bring it to the patient, it has no meaning. 95%, again, I can't make up such statistics. 95% experimental trials in cancer today fail entirely. The 5% that succeed only improve survival of patients by a fraction of patients, 20 to 30% benefit for maybe five months at most. Usually it's two months. And the patient is financially ruined because the price of these drugs is like $20,000 a month. So basically, and the fine, that is the final thing, the high financial cost. So the crush I call, crush of cancer, why I wrote the book is complexity of the disease, the reductionist conceit, the ultra hype, the simplistic clinical trials based on animal studies and the terrible high financial cost, which is killing the country. We have a $3.5 trillion healthcare budget, the whole Healthcare system is on the verge of a collapse and no one is being cured. Okay, these are the things and my patients are dying at the same rate and I'm using the same drugs I was using in 1977. This is what made me write it. No one is thinking of patients. Everyone is thinking of their next paper in nature, the next grant they have to write. What about the suffering of humans? So the very title of my book is The First Cell which means the earliest can, and the human costs of pursuing cancer to the last. Because 90, basically 90% 90 of the current budget of the government goes to support research on end-stage disease, only 5% on early detection and prevention. It is mind-boggling where the adults are in the room. Now, something else that you mentioned throughout your book at multiple points is a tissue bank that you've created, and it's a very unique tissue bank. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, thank you, Anna. And thank you for reading the book so carefully. Everything in, uh, in my professional life is uh, mediated by a patient experience almost, really. And so I had an experience with a patient named JC in 1980, early 80s, which really changed me forever as a young person. 
And um, I realized that I should study pre-leukemia and try to intercept the disease before it becomes a leukemia like JC was suffering from. And when that thought came to me, I said, well, then I have to study cancer cells, so I better start saving them. It never occurred to me to make a mouse model. So I started just taking blood, marrow, biopsies, whatever I was getting and putting them in the freezers. And this created a started a tissue bank in 1984, which today is the world's largest in this disease. I have 60,000 samples from thousands of patients serially collected as they progress through their disease from pre-leukemia to acute leukemia. And do you know, Anna, of the 60,000 samples in dozens of freezers, not one cell comes from another physician. So every while in these freezers, there's a poignant story to tell for me. These are too personal because to this day, I do the bone marrows with my own hands. In clinic on Monday, I did six bone marrows. And you feel so humbled when someone whose hemoglobin is five grams, who cannot breathe properly, tells you, Dr. Raza, take as much marrow as you want from me. Even if it doesn't help me, it will help someone else. Yeah, you feel so humbled. And this is what makes the tissue bank so precious. And of course, I have not been lazy. I've used samples from tissue bank, published hundreds of papers. But is that what I need? Another paper in nature? No, for God's sake. So the idea I have is that we need to study the entire tissue repository, the serial sample, the every sophisticated latest technology available proteomics, genomics, transcriptomics, metabolomics, the micro, everything we need to study on patients multiple times, use AI, big data analysis to come up with how do we trace the disease back to its very start and then ask the question, why did some healthy person even get pre-leukemia? What made them susceptible? What were the polymorphisms they were born with, they inherited? or they were exposed to, or what is their microbiome like that made them get this. And that's the only way we'll go back to the earliest stage and then learn how to prevent the disease. Yeah, that's wonderful. Now looking forward, you have a vision for an institution called the First Cell Center. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, uh, thank you, because that is a futuristic vision and it's coming to uh, fruition now, actually. I don't want to scare any of your audience. Listeners, if you are hearing this, please don't be scared. But the statistics are that one in five new cancers in America, one in five is diagnosed in a cancer survivor. And the most important person to me is my own late husband, Harvey. He had his first cancer at 34 years of age. He survived it. He got his second cancer at 57 and he died from it. The two cancers were completely unrelated. There was uh, no relationship between uh, the two, completely different tumors. So why is that? That one in five cancers appear in um, cancer survivors because one, they already had some predisposition to get cancer, which we haven't fixed. So they'll get a second one. And number two is that the treatments we are giving them make them susceptible by damaging other cells, stem cells to get these kinds of cancers. So let's say do the math. If there's 1.7 million new cancer patients being diagnosed in America, it means 340,000 of them are happening in cancer survivors. 
that's the place those are the people at highest risk of getting cancer why aren't we studying those people who have survived one cancer follow them aggressively for the appearance of the first cell why is no one thinking of doing this so the center i have imagined the first cell center is a center around cancer survivors and this is not a new idea for me because i had this idea in 1996 and i established a time center therapy induced malignancy evaluation at rush university in chicago i tell the story in my book that as i was leaving chicago with all my samples some unrelated low uh, clerical person came and made the uh, movers unload the research charts from thousands of patients who were cancer survivors who had given me their serial samples because oh we have to do although all the paperwork was complete so anyway i tell that story in the book so as a result today i have thousands of samples rotting in my freezers and they have thousands of research charts rotting in their some uh, warehouse in chicago but the universities cannot come to terms because patients don't mean anything to institutions they are only interested in protecting themselves so my idea of the first cell center is and you know there are 16 million cancer survivors today in america even if 1 million of them just give to the center 10 dollars a month for one year i'll have enough money to do all the studies i need to do i would start saving simply blood samples every Four to six months on anyone who has a history of cancer or has been diagnosed and treated for it. That's it. We just keep saving the samples, and then we, when we have enough samples, we go in and examine them with all the multiomics latest technology and figure out if we are seeing any disease-related perturbations that are early harbingers of coming crisis for one of those patients. That's the idea. Yeah, that's a very special vision that you have, and so thank you for taking that on. Now, I just have one last question to end the interview, and you've alluded to this throughout the interview. But as a summary, could you tell us what you think the scientific community right now, particularly the portion of the community that's concerned with cancer research and cancer care, needs right now? Only one thing, which is. think of the patient first and last any experiment scientists you are designing on your lab bench ask yourself what does it mean how will it help the patient how many thousands of years will it take before it can be converted and translated into improved uh, treatment and if it's not give it up and oncologists stop trusting other people to do your work stop standing outside the patient's uh, uh, bed in a patient's room on your rounds and discuss balancing electrolytes for 45 minutes and spend 5 minutes saying hello to the patient and thinking about what's killing the patient is the cancer not the electrolyte imbalance i think all of us are uh, are really guilty of not thinking of the patient all the time everything should be motivated by one thing and one thing alone the person who's suffering and it is horrible suffering and this is what i see on a daily basis anna and this is what i describe in the book over and over and i'll since this is your last question let me end with a short poem from emily dickinson which really conveys my feelings very clearly i measure every grief i meet with analytic eyes i wonder if it weighs like mine 
or has a different size. I wonder if they had it long or did it just begin? I cannot find the date of mine. It's been so long a pain. I wonder if it hurts to live and if they have to try and whether could they choose between they would not rather die. Yes, that's a beautiful poem. Thank you for leaving off with that. I think it's a very powerful message. And that brings us to the end of the interview, Dr. Raza. Thank you again for joining us today and for everything that you're doing in the battle against cancer, both as a doctor and a scientist. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much, Anna. Good luck to you. And for everyone listening, that's it for this week of Sci-Section. Make sure to check out our podcast available on global platforms for all of our latest interviews.